yeah, it's a really, a really terrible place to start what could arguably be the biggest single moment of, you know, your creative career. That's the voice of Keith Frankel. He's a former producer at MTV, former creative director at Cambridge-based HubSpot, and now the chief digital officer at the startup TableList. And no, the terrible place he's talking about is not Boston. But I can understand why you might think that. Boston has a reputation for not being overly creative in the business world. And we'll explore that theme on today's show. But our story begins with Keith taking a trip to see someone legendary. Someone we all know. Someone really everyone in America probably knows. You're listening to Tech It Forward. Welcome to Tech It Forward, where we tell the stories of Boston's tech and social entrepreneurs. We're the official podcast of TUG, Technology Underwriting the Greater Good, which brings together the entire tech startup world in town to help fund and grow nonprofits helping Boston's youth. I'm Jay Akunzo, and on today's episode, creativity. To paint the picture, we fly to New York the morning of, I have 300 pounds of camera equipment and a a video team of three, me and my two um, videographers. And we have to take an Uber from the airport all the way into the city and all the way to the all the way to the west side and we get to this giant, you know, skyscraper and we walk to the front door and they say, No, you have to go in the service elevator. So now we're standing in this boiling hot service elevator, just waiting in line with all these folks taking out trash and delivering food to different, you know, companies in the building. And then we have to ride the elevator up to her office and we walk out and we're drenched in sweat and we have 300 pounds of camera equipment. We just flew from Boston to New York. It's been nonstop. And boom, we are in this pristine, immaculate office and we are walked directly to her personal office. So whose office was it? Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart's personal office that overlooks all of Manhattan. It's not an ideal position to be in. So leading up to this, to add even more, more cause for concern, Martha Stewart clearly has a team of handlers and they were great. Don't get me wrong. Very nice, very personable, but they are her handlers for a reason. They are very particular. And so one of, one of the situations we found ourselves in when we were, we were talking to them on the phone, never to Martha, always to her people. You know, she has a PR person. She has a marketing person. She has hair and makeup people. She has her own executive video person who has to give approval on every shot, every question, every everything. And so they want all of this approved beforehand. They want to know what's going on. Again, I'm the asshole from MTV who did reality television. I don't have scripts. I don't come with questions. I don't do interviews. We sit in front of a uh, camera and we just start chatting. And what happens, happens. And we go the way we go. And that's what I like to do. I believe it gets the most authentic interviews. I believe it gets the realest. Those are the things I, things I think people really respond to and what resonates with folks. Not this corporate porn. Let me put you in front of a white wall and let's talk. And you already know what you're going to say. And you know what? You've written it out and it's on a teleprompter. Anyway, so we come into this environment where they've wanted the questions. They even, su- they even suggested getting a teleprompter. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to give you any questions. I'm not going to come with anything. I don't even have a piece of paper. Just like that. You're just like, you want this and I'm not giving it to you. It was, listen, I want to make you feel comfortable. I'm happy to provide you with themes of things I might talk about. But I promise you, I'm not going to throw her a curveball. 
we're here to make her look good. <laughs> and you know that won't be very hard, joke, joke, joke. But our, my job is to make them feel comfortable enough to allow me to do what I need to do. Right. Because that's ultimate. I'm there to do my job. Right. Martha can no longer be Martha, this person on a pedestal for me. She's just an interviewee, basically. You know, that's all she can be. Now, keep in mind that they've yet to see Martha Stewart. The team is there to capture some footage for HubSpot's conference where Martha's set to speak. And they arrive way ahead of time to set up all their equipment in such a tiny office run by somebody who's pretty famously finicky. So they planned ahead. They got there on time. But of course, what happens? Lo and behold, we get there 15 minutes later, Martha walks in. No one sees her walk in. She's suddenly in the room and she's clearly a bit unhappy that we have destroyed her beautiful immaculate office. We've had to, we've moved couches, there are wires everywhere. Martha comes in and takes her shoes off in her office. Our stuff is all over the place. And so she just kind of calls out, well, I see you found my office. Now, not in a snarky way, not in a rude way, but there was a little bit of feist, you know, a little, she was a little feisty. Right. But it's her office and she caught us, you know, red handed. And this is the first moment you've actually seen her in person, right? Or, or even talked to her. Even talked to her. Yeah. Never, we were never given access to speak with her, um, which is something I usually require so that I can start to build a rapport. She, I've clearly never seen her. And just a bit of the background in order, part of my job is I, I, when I produce the video, what I'm there to do is all client side. It's all the subject, the talent in front of the camera is to build a rapport with them, to make them feel very comfortable so that ultimately I can get them to say whatever I need them to say. That's the goal. Um, Martha Stewart has done this forever and she's done it with way bigger names than me. And she's been in far bigger, in front of our far bigger audiences in front of far larger and more professional setups. We're 300 pounds of camera equipment. Some places that's one camera. You know, that's not what we've got going on. So, and I'm also fairly young, but from the moment Martha walks in, we're sweaty, we're stressed, we've been in a freight elevator, we've been running around New York, we have all this equipment, there are 900 people looking over our shoulders. The second Martha walks in the door, I have to be in charge. That's, that's just how it is. Not Martha, not the handlers, you're, you're the man in charge. I'm in charge. Keith says this idea of taking charge to produce a better creative project came from his days as a producer at MTV. He takes us back to his very first video shoot. It's all done and I think it goes great. It's successful because there are no explosions, no one got hurt, it went off okay. You know, There was no major issues, so I thought it was successful. The executive producer walks up to me and he says, you can basically never do any of what you just did. Wow. And oh my gosh. Now, for those who don't know, in the TV business, these guys are the head of all creatives, far and away the most powerful people on a given project. I mean, they can make or break your whole career. What do you mean? I thought it went great, blah, 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 blah. And he said, from the moment I walked in, you said to me the entire time, yes, sir, yes, no, sir, yes, sir, uh, right away, sir, and you were doing it in front of the talent. And to the talent, you were saying, of course, whatever you need, yes, sir, what, right away. And you were treating them like they ran you, and you were treating me like I ran you in front of the people who you need to be running. And what he said to me is, from now on, if when you walk into your shoot, you're, you run the shoot. Nobody else runs the shoot. doesn't matter how big they are, how important they are, how sensitive they are. You are the man wearing the pants. You direct everybody. 
That means no calling people Mr. So-and-so. Mr. Smith, please, this way. That's not your job. That's the PA's job. That's the lower-level folks' job to make them feel good. Your job is to get out of them what you need to get out of them to make the deliverable you're creating, an episode, successful. And it amazed me. I came from the South. Everyone's manners, yes, sir, no, sir. And that's not the case. You have to run the shoot. So how did that play out with Martha Stewart? So we go to Martha, and we wa- she walks in the room, and her handlers... They're calling her Martha because they're close with her, but it's clear they even are just scared of her. You know, my two videographers are young and I don't blame them. This is what everyone would do. They freeze up. They're scared to move and do their job. My head of, you know, the head uh, of the conference who's been talking with her people the entire time freezes up. Everyone freezes up. But the second she walks in, despite the fact that I'm just kind of miserable after this ridiculous day and the day has just started and the whole reason, the whole difficult thing that I'm about to start, the whole focus of the day hasn't begun yet, I've got to take control. And so she walks in and she says, so I see you've taken over my, I see you found my office and I have to immediately give something back. And I just kind of call out very casually, hopefully playfully, yeah, we, uh, we tend to spread out quickly. And now there was no feedback from her and that wasn't necessary. She didn't even turn to look at me. The point was that my voice started to become synonymous with authority. Right, you had to diffuse that situation right away. Totally, totally. And it might have even pissed her off more. But you know what, that's okay. Because I could deal with with the angry talent, but I cannot deal with a talent who thinks they can run all over me. Even if she really could. I can't deal with that. That's something we can't do. So we do the setup, we stay out of her way, um, I make it clear that I'm running the shoot to my, to my folks. Um, if she saw it or not, I don't know. But then it becomes time to shoot. We're all set up. Martha and I still have not met each other. We've not looked at each other. We've not done anything. And she gets up, and Martha calls to the entire room, I don't want this many people in here. She doesn't say it to her handlers. She doesn't say it to me. She doesn't say it to the conference project lead. She just says it. I don't want all these people in here. And everyone immediately, you can see, everyone's getting skittish. They're very nervous. Her PR handler says, Martha, let me introduce you to the person in charge. This is Keith Frankel. He's head of creative at HubSpot. He's going to be running the shoot, blah, 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 blah. Martha glances at me for less than a second. No smile, no handshake, no nothing. So I'm already bracing myself for this to be a pretty bad interview. Right. Um, So she sits down in the chair and I sit down in my chair. And typically what happens is I go over all the all the information. A lot of times because we work in a B2B environment, a lot of the people I film are customers who don't have experience being in front of a camera. So this is the moment where I get them comfortable, where I tell them what to expect. Very, very simple stuff. Martha's done this a million times. It would be insulting to do that to her. However, I need to build a rapport and I'm struggling on the spot to try and come up with an idea. What am I going to say to her? What, how am I going to get a conversation going? Right. Cause your rapport building approach is now no longer relevant. You can't prepare them to be on camera if they've been on camera a million times. I, so that's out. I wasn't given access to sit and talk with her. When I was introduced with her, we got to share no playful back and forth, nothing. As she sits down, the way for me to build rapport is to then 
make her feel like I'm in control and that I've got her, she's safe. Martha doesn't need me to feel safe. She's done this a million times. So I've lost all the typical, you know, pages, plays in my playbook. So what, what did you do? So she is, she kind of looks around again and says, um, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. She still hasn't looked me in the eye and we're sitting directly across from each other like you and I are, I are now. I'm right next to the camera. She's right in front of the camera. We're three feet from each other and she hasn't looked at me. And so what ends up happening is she says this again and I turn around and the room is still full of people. It's my two videographers, my project lead, it's me, it's Martha and it's her four handlers. This is the moment for me to make her realize who's in control. And so I call out to the room, unless it is absolutely necessary that you are in here to hear every question, please leave now. And there's no playfulness about it, it's entirely stern. And when I turn back to Martha, She's looking directly at me and she's smiling. <laughs> and wow. in that moment, I realized, okay, I have my rapport. That's all I need. And from there, I could make a situational joke about it. I do like a, you know, once everyone leaves the room and she chuckles. And then I say, how you doing, Martha? And she's like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm ready. And that's all we needed before we started. Then there's one of her people in the room and they're hovering right behind me. I turn around and I say, I need, you to, I need you to move. I need you to go back there. I don't want Martha's eyes jumping around back and forth from me to you. We're gonna see it in the video. I need her focusing on me. Turn back to Martha, another smile. It's very clear that I've won the respect I needed. I've proven that I'm the authority. And that's ultimately what this is about. We had a fantastic interview. Um, Martha was a, you know, she's an older gal. She's busy, she's got a lot on her mind. She has a ridiculous empire behind her. And so she was short on time and short on patience. What amazed me about her is the second I said, Martha, you ready to rock and roll? She said, let's do this. Boom, she was on. It was amazing to see. Unlike, I've interviewed a lot of people who are business world famous, who are, who are you know, write books and they speak on stage. Mm -hmm. You know, your 20,000 Twitter followers. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Even the 100,000 Twitter follower business <laughs> folks. That's the, that's the real upper echelon, the, right? That, that is. 100,000 Twitter that's followers. That's the highest level. <laughs> and when you compare that to Martha Stewart, who has 3 million Twitter followers and who has done this really, has an entire career in front of the camera, it suddenly becomes glaringly obvious what, glaringly obvious what a professional is at this. She knows how to do this. And it was so good that I couldn't even I couldn't even tell where the production of her started and where the genuine person ended. I had no idea where those crossed over. It felt so genuine. Her answers, our conversation, the way she looked at me and the camera, I could not tell if it was produced. Yet, I have to believe it was produced because she was the exact opposite up until the point where we said, let's go. And I asked the first question. It was amazing. But that's basically the situation. When Martha came in, she was not Miss Stewart. Martha was Martha. And Martha was on the same level as the two videographer, the 24-year-old videographers I had doing the work. Me commanding them around was the same way I needed to command Martha around. Now, Martha deserves infinite amounts of respect. She has a ridiculously storied career. There are few American business people as famous or as well-known as her. 
But on my shoot, she's just another person. And if my job is to create this amazing deliverable, I am un- I'm in the unique position of understanding what it takes to make that deliverable, even though Martha has more experience around the camera than I do. Fact is, she does not know better than I do what, it t- what I need to get that thing out and to get the deliverable the way I need it. And so I have to be in control. We're going to take a quick break, but more with Keith Frankel after this, including the local creative group that he revived that's been exploding back onto the scene, attracting the likes of Johnny Cupcakes and other local legends. He'll also explain how creativity can survive inside of Boston's famously analytical businesses. After that, we'll talk to the founder of a nonprofit who says the best t-shirt designs you can buy are made by nine-year-olds. So stick around. This is Tech It Forward. I'm Jay Akunzo. Hey, thanks for listening. I wanted to remind you really quickly that if you like the show, we really appreciate local support since the podcast is dedicated to Boston's tech and social entrepreneurs. So on Twitter, if you share anything, use the hashtag TechItForward with forward abbreviated FWD so we can say thanks. And you can check out more shows as well as subscribe and explore all the great work done by our parent organization, Tug, at tug.org slash techitforward. That's T-U-G-G dot org slash techitfwd. And lastly, if you want to reach me, I'm Jay Akunzo. I'm on Twitter at jzo, J-A-Y underscore Z-O. And now more with Keith Frankel. So you recently relaunched something that was once an institution in Boston around creativity, which is Boston Creative Mornings. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how that started? How did you resurface it? And how was the first event? So, yeah, just a bit of context around Creative Mornings. It's basically, a, for those unfamiliar, it's a global breakfast lecture series for these um, creative communities of some of the world's biggest cities. So right now there are over 80 chapters all across the, the globe. There are... There's a chapter in Prague, in London, in Moscow, in San Francisco, in New York. Um, And Boston was actually one of the first 10 cities. I believe it was number seven. And it was run for several years by Design Museum Boston, which is, I believe, in the Four Point area. And sure, a lot of people wouldn't call Boston Tech the most creative community. I think they'd be wrong, but I think the perception is that words like analytical, or technological or just savvy and sound and maybe even safe come to mind but the idea of unbridled creativity especially from the startup community doesn't really seem to emanate out of boston to people that don't really understand this community but the city was still one of the first globally to participate in this phenomenon all around creativity in creative mornings now that said the chapter did sunset for a while and so when keith revived it he had one goal in mind when I first started doing Creative Mornings, I thought it was really important, not only for myself, but for the community, that there was this communal aspect to creativity, that there was an outlet for many people to come together across all different mediums and kind of creative outlets and have this event where they could come and mingle and just enjoy being creative, where there was actually something for them. Keith goes on to tell us what happened the first time he opened ticket sales for the brand new Boston Creative Mornings. What surprised me is I opened the event on Monday. Uh, I send a tweet out that morning and 50% of the tickets were gone by the end of the day. Wow. And the next day I sent one more tweet and I think the next, you know, the remaining 60% of the tickets were gone. Yeah. And then by the third day, one more tweet in the morning, every ticket was gone. So in three days... We sold out 
every ticket there. And then the wait list started to grow. I think the wait list got up to 30 or so people at one point. Um, now to put that in perspective, this is an event that had no promotion behind it, no marketing, had been dead for at least six months and was either only writing off its name, off my name, which I don't think is very possible, or it was writing off a starvation or thirst for some creative outlet within our community. And I think the answer is probably some combination of the first and last, but certainly predominantly that last. There is a real need and, you know, there's a thirst for creativity in Boston. Boston is viewed as academic, it's viewed as scientific. There's some tech stuff now, but it's not viewed as creative. So Keith, can you take a moment to enlighten some listeners that maybe commiserate with some others? What is it to work as a creative in business? Creativity or uh, creative professionals or creative industries, unlike any other type of industry, we have the least divide between work and life. It never leaves us. A lot of jobs, a lot of industries, you are working when you are in the office and maybe on the commute to work and maybe on the commute from work home. Creativity is all the time. It's the last thing I'm doing before I go to sleep. It's what I'm doing in the shower when I wake up, when I drink my coffee, when I'm watching commercials. There are always these aha moments. Oh my gosh, that's exactly what I, I need to replicate that and do that. So just the nature, I mean, inherent in creativity is that it can exist anywhere right. and always, anywhere and at all times. Keith and I talked about why people either seem to fully embrace the idea of creativity and it becomes this passionate def definition for their life, or they just totally reject it and they roll their eyes when they hear anything about it. Uh, Keith says that it has to do with the ideas of subjectivity. versus objectivity. And specifically, how that affects the work of a creative in a business. They, they just tackle with the same issue we all tackle with, is I need to solve a problem. However, I am a kind of an artist at heart. I view myself as that. How do I make sense of these two? And my job is to try and find the balance in those things, is to try and make the subjective objective, or how I really view it is try and create deliverables that sit comfortably between those two. So I have a process of um, agile feedback. Um, let's look at the typical project, for example. I... I get an email or I get a request from some department, a client, and my job is to meet with them and gather all the information about their project. What are the requirements? What are the specifications? What are they hoping to achieve? Usually what they'll tell me is, hey, I need this, I need this, I need this. Um, really what they're meaning is I want this, I want this, I want this. My job is to sift through all that bullshit and come out with the thing they actually need. What's the problem they have? How can I solve it? Or what's the opportunity in the market they're trying to address? And how do I satisfy, you know, the need to fit that opportunity? Okay. I leave that meeting and I go to my creative team and I have all this information and I've already started to develop an idea or concept for how we're going to solve the problem, how we're going to fill the gap, whatever. I give this information to my creative and 
basically set them on their way. Now, if they decide to go with my idea or decide to go with my concept, great. If they don't, no problem. They just have to be justified in their reason for going a different direction. So is your job in that to give them enough context from the meeting? You know, they're producers. They can't be in and out of meetings all day on a manager type schedule. They have to be on a maker's schedule. They need big blocks of time to do creative production. So are you giving them that context so that they're informed enough to then say, you know what, Keith, that's a great idea, but I think mine's a touch better based on that context. Yeah, I've been promoted to the point where I do this job either because I'm not good enough at sitting in the space and creating the stuff <laughs> or because I'm good at doing that and relaying the information. You know, you bring up this interesting point. Is, are you giving the context? Um, the reason that I don't let, so this is another rule I have. My designers don't sit in meetings. Um, almost ever senior designers, senior video producers, they might, but for the most part, my, my creatives don't sit in meetings. I sit in meetings for them. The reason is because work doesn't happen in meetings and work doesn't happen in conversation. Work happens for creatives by sitting there long enough and marinating on the problem long enough in order to start producing thoughtful, successful work. Interesting thing about creative creativity, creative output, creative work. It is you cannot rein it in, you cannot force it, you can't schedule it, you just have to sit there long enough for it to happen. So I liken it to REM sleep. Okay, so for the average person, it takes about 90 minutes to reach your first REM cycle, um, you know, when sleeping. 90 minutes of non-REM sleep to reach your first REM cycle. But for the poor unfortunate soul who wakes up in the middle of the night, if he manages to go back to sleep, that has to start all over again. You don't just start at minute 89 and then boom, I'm back in REM cycle. Creativity works the exact same way. To come up with thoughtful, successful solutions, we need to sit at our desks and marinate for a prolonged period of time. We need to get past those first 10 minutes of thought, which are crap. We need to get past the next 10 minutes of thought, which are a little bit less crap, but still made mostly crap. We have to get to the point where we're thinking in unique and unpredictable ways. That doesn't just happen by sitting down. So if we're, if we're doing this podcast right, there's people listening out in Boston right now that are hearing you say, well, creativity doesn't work that way and creativity this and that. And I'm sitting here and I'm totally buying into it. And you can see me nodding behind the mic. There's probably some people out there that are like, you know what? Give me the analytics. Give me the understanding of exactly what I need to do in as little amount of time as possible to get the result. I'm at a startup or maybe I'm not wired like a quote unquote creative but you're talking about it like this ephemeral abstract idea. Creativity does X, Y, Z. Like there's an absolute set of rules or laws that governs your work. How do you justify that to somebody who's so focused on give me the metrics, get me the lead, get me the sale, build me that, that app? Let's focus on objectivity and subjectivity. Sure. Okay. So there is this misconception that oh, creatives paint pretty pictures, designers, they paint pretty pictures. Um, hey, can you, can you throw some, can you make this look pretty for me? Can you make this pop for me? Can you make it loud? Can you make it stand out? Can you make it do the, can you make it look like Apple? Have, have fun with it. Yeah. Right. Have fun with it, but make it pop. Yeah. That's a really unfortunate misconception, um, for a lot of reasons. One is because it highlights a fundamental misunderstanding of what the function and role of a creative is in a corporate setting. Okay. Art can be simply art. It can be the expression of the creator and that's it. But most companies don't pay artists 
they pay creatives, they pay creative professionals. And so the focus, the responsibility of that individual is totally different from, from what it, an artist's responsibility is to his or herself. However, most people who work with non-creatives who work with creatives seem to think that, seem to view them as artists. The reason I bring that up is because one is fundamentally subjective. Art is fundamentally subjective. Even people who value, who put value on the, the worth of a work of art, it's entirely subjective. It's based on the, the desire for the piece from the consumer. It's not actually based on the value of the output from the creator. This is what typically goes behind the creation of a web page. And now this isn't talking about concept, conceptual or even wireframing. Just to build a web page that leads to a button that people need to click in order to generate those numbers that someone wants, this is what I think about. Okay, let's develop a, a baseline grid, a 24 pixel baseline grid, which means basically I put a, a piece of graph paper over the website and every 24 pixels there's another row. Okay, that's basically what that means. Then I say, all right, let's set up, that sets our vertical, our visual vertical rhythm, right? That's our visual rhythm. And I have to align every element I create on that page. Now, problem, there are images, there's text, there's text of all different sizes, there are buttons, there are all kinds of design flourishes, there are graphics, there are images, whatever. Those all have to fit on that visual rhythm. Now, no one on the website sees this, but it's the thing that makes your experience with the site comfortable and easy on the eye and leads you to the thing that for the guy who just wants the metrics his whole job relies on it relies on the click of that button my job is to highlight that button without highlighting the things i use to get to that button that's what design is is essentially all about we do all these things behind the scene that no one sees and then they say oh it's you know blah 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 it's entirely subjective actually that's all based on a mathematical equation However, to come up with the idea of how I walk you there, even on top of that grid, on top of all that objectivity, it requires a fair amount of subjective creative thought. There are a million ways I can get you to that button. My job is given all the variables and information I have to find the best way or the way that loses the least people on the way there. What about when you're working with the designer, when they have a lot of opinions of how that touch point should end up when it's created and you're working through this subjectivity and there there's that degree of creative direction you have to give How, how's your process run there all right so let, let's let's return to this process so let's go back to the typical project I've met with the client I've gathered all the information I think I need I've started to come up with a solution myself um, I take it back to my creative and I say here's this here's the situation this is what we're trying to solve this is the information we have this is the content you have to use these are the boxes you need to check here's how I think you should do this now, we've gotten to this point where it's fine if the creative doesn't like my idea. It's not about liking, let me take that back. It's fine if the creative thinks there's a better solution than the solution I've come up with. That's totally okay. They just need to quickly justify to me why they believe that. Regardless, their job is to go create a deliverable, to go create something we can look at and we can see, hell, maybe we can touch and play with doesn't matter. They need to go create something, a solution to all of that information. But my job's not done, okay? I then come and take a look at that deliverable and I pull at it and I push at it and I bite at it and I try and punch all these holes in it so that my creative has to go back to the drawing board and plug up all these things. 
However, it's important to note that the feedback I'm giving there is entirely objective. It's this doesn't have the right weight. This is this is too confusing. The button isn't clear enough. It's uh, there's a point of tension between these two elements that doesn't have enough weight. You have the focus on the wrong area, so on and so forth. Right? I punch all these objective objective holes in this thing. So what happens next? The creative goes back to the drawing board, and in order to defend against my criticisms, they have to plug up all those holes, and in by doing so, they make the deliverable better. However, my job's not done. They give me the new deliverable, and I go through and do the same thing. I push at it, and I pull at it, and I bite at it, and I poke holes in it in the same fashion I did before, and the creative goes back to the drawing board and tries to plug up those holes, and again, and again, and again, and push again, at it, and, and again, pull at it, and, and again, and bite at it, and again, at it, and, and again, pull at it, and again, and bite at it. He calls this whole process climbing ladders, and he keeps doing it with his creative team over and over again until the only feedback he's getting sounds like this. Well, I would prefer if, and when we get to that point of preference where the only feedback I'm giving, or where the only feedback I have is no longer justified in objectivity, it's all about personal preference, my preference for something to be, say, green instead of blue, that the deliverable's done. And the creator, the creative professional, gets to put their final stamp of preference on it. And in such a way, I get this highly defensible deliverable. I can go in any room with any executive or client and defend all the decisions we made and justify them because I've done it with my creative. However, my creative still gets to feel a sense of ownership. They get to feel that subjective claim to artists that they yearn for so badly. And in such a way, I get this beautiful deliverable that solves the problem, yet is artistic and subjective in nature, and I get a happy client, and I get a happy creator. And so this is basically the process I do with my entire team over and over for every single project we do. The nice thing is when you build a really good team, the way this scales is I don't have to be the one on the next rung every time. It can be someone else on the team. I can be the first person to poke holes, the creative fixes it. The next one may be one of my designers, one of the other ones, maybe a senior video producer. And when you build a team over time long enough where there's some issues with this, which we can talk about, but when you build this team where collaboration isn't about making people feel good it's about trying to find the best solution and if you if what it takes to find that is dissent is telling someone no is telling someone that's not good enough is telling someone this is broken and people are okay with it you get this incredibly powerful machine to just you know zoom forward towards like this great create creative output not only highly efficient but high quality as well and that seems to me to feel for whatever reason more boston's speed right there's like some grit and grizzle and you have to go through this like pain of getting this thing out the door and there's a little bit of a mathematical <laughs> equation or geographic overlay to this website build out or whatever the case is. this feels this feels like you know like this feels dirty water this doesn't feel ephemeral frolicking in the field it, totally creativity this is, this is not your feel good creative space right this is not your let's hop in a room and have a brainstorm where the brainstorming session is, let's throw as many ideas at the wall as we can. This is the Socratic method of creativity. The goal here is to make the subjective arguably objective by putting it under the scrutiny of many people. 
basically what we're trying to do is triangulate some kind of objectivity out of the subjective by having a lot of qualified eyes on it. Up next, we end our show on creativity by talking to Jeff White, who's the founder of a nonprofit called Rightside. Just wait until you hear what these guys do. You can't help but smile. The mission of Rightside Shirts is to promote creativity and raise money for youth art education by selling goods designed by kids. Got it. So what are some of the goods that you guys sell? Um, so right now it's mostly t-shirts. We sell t-shirts on fine art prints, um, but you know we want to move into iPhone cases and towels, bags, you know anything that you can screen print onto. Um, but yeah, right now we just have like this whole line of amazing graphic t-shirts that are just full of everything from like goofy abstract drawings from our kindergartner Angelo who just calls it a thingamajigger and just threw a bunch of paint on the canvas to really intricate like cityscapes um, from middle schoolers who just produce like the most amazing detailed work. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the whole range. It's as different as kids are in public schools. Yeah. And we just figure instead of going to Urban Outfitters or anywhere else to get your graphic t-shirt, why not wear one designed by a kid and then have it support schools in your community? Right. And actually, I went to the site the first time I heard about Right Side and I was expecting it to feel, to look and feel very different in terms of the products and, and what kind of graphics are on these tees. Mm -hmm. And a few of them felt like, okay, yeah, that was definitely designed by a kid. And even some of them had the kid's signature on it, which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them felt like this could be sold anywhere. Yeah. Right? This could be on any t-shirt company that you, you know, subscribe to whatever, a year ago, and you still get the email and occasionally you click through yep. it or you like them on Facebook and you see these cool design contests that they run and all, there's tons of them out there. And I felt like this one would feel like a lot different and therefore not as quality or not as interesting to buy. And it doesn't at all. It feels like these are really cool shirts that I couldn't find anywhere else. Right. And I should buy them here instead of somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah. People buy our shirts sometimes and they have no idea that they're designed by kids. They're just like, that's a really awesome design. So here's how Right Side works. They partner with a local school and hold a contest where students get to design and paint and draw all kinds of crazy things. The winners get picked and printed, and the proceeds help fund youth art programs back in that same school. But Jeff White wasn't always destined to found Right Side Shirts. In fact, he wanted to do something much different with his life. So you majored in finance and economics at Boston College. Yes. You were a wealth management intern at Merrill Lynch, mm -hmm. and then you did a little bit in investment banking. So naturally, you now run a creative shop with creativity <laughs> all around it, and yes, it's yep, kids yep. designing t-shirts. How did that happen? Oh, man. Um, so it was definitely a, a pretty long process, long evolution, I guess, of how I got there. Um, and all of it's kind of interconnected. Jeff remembers this one particular moment in high school that cemented his desire to fight for creativity and fight against this dichotomy that he saw between academia and creative risk-taking. It was his junior year, and he really wanted to take this arts class, but according to his guidance counselor... And she was like, you know, that might not be the best idea if you wanted to get into a very competitive school. Maybe it would be better to take like AP European history or something like that. So he took the AP class. He got into a great college, Boston College, he focused on business, and he got an internship offer in investment banking. His parents were thrilled, his professors were thrilled. All my peers were like, that's awesome, man, you did it, investment banking, that's great. And then I got to the job, 
and it just wasn't um, at all what I expected um, and I realized that it wasn't at all for me um, and, and it's not because of you know the, the terribly hard work that that was no problem for me but it was more about the work that I was doing and so that was really confusing for me because this was something that I had been working towards you know everybody was telling me this was kind of the right career path for me in the end he turned it down he turned down this great job offer from a prestigious investment bank in a way I guess I kind of felt felt tricked by my education system um, and just kind of felt like, you know, the morals that were instilled in me and um, what my professors and like what my community valued wasn't really in line with, with what I really wanted to do. Somewhere along the way I was led astray. Um, and then luckily, you know, throughout senior year of college, I had the flexibility to kind of do things that did interest me. I had time to take that art course that I wanted to take. Um, and I ended up taking a class, an art history class on expressionism. Um, and it completely opened my eyes to this world of art that like I now love and, and I'm obsessed with. I ended up writing my senior thesis on the art market. Um, and one of the main themes that I learned about in this expressionist course was a lot of these big famous artists who sell their work for millions where a lot of times just copying kids and just like bringing a childlike creative energy to the canvas. Um, That's funny because my mom is a preschool teacher and whenever she's she sees modern art, she's like, my students do that all day, yeah, every day. And then yeah. they, they put it on their fridge and their parents eventually just like throw it out or put it in a box mm -hmm. somewhere. It doesn't sell for thousands or millions of dollars. Right? And it very well could. I mean, it's ridiculous. You look you look back in the, um, in the early 20th century, there are expressionist artists, groups of expressionist artists only using primary colors. There are people just painting like blue horses and just like, you know, stuff exactly like a kid would do. Right. And someone, by the way, someone somewhere is hopefully listening to this podcast. Hopefully we've reached some people in the art community. But unfortunately, that probably means someone is sitting in their apartment or on their way to work thinking those two idiots on this mic right now are <laughs> trashing this like storied yeah. history yeah. of modern I art know, I know, I know. by comparing it to children, really. But I, I actually do believe it. It's very much a yeah. product of creativity. And you know, and those people shouldn't be offended because honestly, I think that's a great compliment that you can give those artists um, is that they were able to strip away all their inhibitions and, and you know, all like the social socialization that they've learned throughout their education and stuff and just really be able to strip that all away and, right. and let the creative juices flow. So I get the, uh, it's a very authentic move for you to move towards creativity away from iBanking in that world. Mm -hmm. uh, how did the idea of Right Side itself come about? So yeah, so I, I've always been really interested in social entrepreneurism. Um, and so I was in the business school. And one of the first things that kind of got me interested in that was Muhammad Yunus's Grameen Bank. So the first like microfinance lending institution. Um, just kind of opened this world to me where you could actually use business as a force for good. He says that he tried a number of ideas out of school and nothing really stuck. Then he saw a TED talk which changed everything for him. Perhaps a lot of you guys have seen this. It's Ken Robinson's deeply moving talk called How Schools Kill Creativity. Um, and I mean, the title, he gives it away. He says that schools just, you know, it's not like they're just like being neutral about it. They're actually actively killing creativity in kids. Um, by kind of preaching this mantra of like standardized testing where you either like succeed or you fail um, and you don't want to fail because 
then your school won't get funding because a lot of times funding is tied to test scores. Um, and so you're creating this culture where you're making kids afraid of failure. Um, and if you're afraid of failure, you're never going to come up with an original thought in your life. And so I thought that that was something that was terrible because it struck a personal chord with me where, you know, I wish that there's a little bit more creativity in my, my education growing up. Um, and just like those two kinds of ideas of like how awesome kids art looks. Um, and at the same time of how underfunded art programs are in public schools kind of like merged together. And I just thought, how cool would it be to sell kids art on t-shirts and have all the profits go and support art programs in their schools. Awesome. Awesome. Jeff cites a study from Oxford that lists creativity as the number one most vital skill someone can possess to be successful today. He says the world today, including the business world, is changing so rapidly that established quote unquote ways of doing things aren't enough. You need to be able to come up with that original thought to be that creative person who's not afraid of risk taking. And that, he says, is the key. Addressing and overcoming that fear of risk, that fear that so often blocks creative thought. So how is Right Side Shirts helping kids actually get creative? Well, just listen to this one story. We've heard a story from, from one of our artists, or rather one of our artist's moms, um, who after we selected uh, her son's design to print, she was like, almost cursing us because now she's like running around the house having to clean up after him. He's like painting all over the walls and just like drawing <laughs> everywhere and just getting so into art, um, which is, which is amazing for us to see. Um, because that's, you know, not only do we directly fund the problem by, or rather fund the solution, um, by donating our profits to support youth art education. But I think more importantly, we're showing these kids who design our shirts that their work and their creativity is something that has value um, and it's an incredibly empower empowering experience for them um, yeah I feel like there's two words that come to mind when I think of creativity in general but certainly look at the work you're doing and it's wonder and fear so there's this lack of wonder that adults might have on anything really because everything is at our fingertips you can get an answer to anything and research anything and learn instantly which is a beautiful beautiful thing mm -hmm. but you might lose the idea that there are things you don't understand and that's powerful stuff that's mm -hmm. interesting mm -hmm. and the second thing being fear when you're a kid you don't think twice yeah i'm gonna draw something and this is the greatest thing ever drawn mm -hmm. but then you start to question your work others work there's more judgment as you get older mm -hmm. you take yourself or others more seriously and mm -hmm. i feel like that becomes it's it's a scary proposition mm -hmm. i often say that like it's scary to write paragraphs you know, in marketing, people like to write blog posts. So it's not scary to write headlines because it's sort of formulaic. You can come up with a formula to write a headline. Mm -hmm. But once you dive into the paragraphs, that's where it's all you, mm -hmm. no one else. Yeah. So I feel like what you guys are doing is you're kind of letting these kids know this is all you and it's actually a really good thing. So mm -hmm. overcome that fear, keep creating. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just touching on the first thing, what you said with, uh, with wonder. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that we want to fund youth art education over other things is because we want it to be more about kids finding the right questions to ask. Like you said, you could find all the answers at your fingertips right now, but that's not what's going to be important in the future. The important thing is going to be to know which, what are the right questions to ask um, and kind of what you're looking for in all the abundance of information that we have. And it's that right there, that encouragement in kids to ask the right questions to seek out creative solutions, to look for and to understand and to create not just the correct ways of doing things, but new ways. Not just best practices, but unique practices. It's all of this early understanding in kids of the power of creativity 
that Jeff thinks and Keith thinks and I think and hopefully you think will move our businesses and our world forward. And all that wrapped together is the power of creativity. And I'd argue nothing sounds more Boston than that. Special thanks to my guests, Keith Frankel of Table List and Jeff White of Right Side Shirts. And a big thank you goes out to our supporting organization, Tug. For more of the show, you can subscribe on iTunes by searching the phrase Tech It Forward, all spelled out, or you can visit tug.org slash tech it forward, and that's T-U-G-G dot org slash tech it F-W-D. I'm Jay Kunzo. Thanks for listening to Tech It Forward. <laughs>